Um, our, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Not both chapters in their entirety, but readings from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Chapter 2, verse 7. And then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And let me take a moment to pray for us as we continue together. Father in heaven, we do come to you in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit to first and foremost recognize that you are God, that we are not, and that we are in desperate need of you at all times. And so, Lord, would this moment be a time in which you speak to us, in which you challenge us, in which you comfort us and draw us to yourself, making us more and more like your Son? Would you do this through the power of your Spirit that brings life, that brings truth, that brings conviction? We pray, Lord, all of this in the matchless name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. These are the opening lines of a book by Julian Barnes, a memoir entitled Nothing to be Frightened of. He's an English writer, and this memoir largely deals with Barnes's lifelong fear of death. And Barnes himself, who is a well-known and established atheist, agnostic rather, wrestles with the questions of death and life, of reality, of science, and of family as well in this memoir. Barnes recognizes, though he's very honest in this memoir, the tension of holding the claim that we are nothing more than our material existence and also fearing the end of said existence. And if we're honest, this is a tension that we have to recognize and grapple with. If we are, at base level, nothing but a collection of neurons and tissue, or meat computers, if you will, then why do we fear the end of such a life? In some ways, this summarizes much of our Western contemporary thought. We find the notion of the divine and the supernatural to be laughable in one sense, and yet we feel deep within our meat computer operating systems that there is meaning and significance, beauty and purpose to life. We are, as one author described it, stowaways on a divine cruise ship. We aren't willing to kind of personally own the cost that there is transcendence and beauty and the divine in this world, and yet we want to reap all the benefits of a world that has it. We want the freedom of denying a God, but we aren't willing to accept the inevitable insignificance of our identity that naturally follows from it. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Now, you might be here today uh, with, with doubts, with questions, with, with some kinds of reservations around the idea of the supernatural, around the idea of God or the Christian faith. And let me just say, if you're here, I'm glad you're here. And, and I invite you to add your questions, your doubts to ours as we struggle together. But we must honestly grapple with the fact and with the tension of our denying of the divine, either explicitly or implicitly in the way we live, and our deep longing for significance. Are we willing to admit that perhaps there is more to the story, to our story, than we realize? 
And that's precisely what we want to do starting today. We're beginning a series around the Holy Spirit entitled The Story of the Spirit. And so for the next six weeks, we'll be exploring the third person of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we will do this by walking through the story of Scripture beginning in Genesis, seeing the Spirit as creator. And so that's where we're beginning our time this morning. And, and as we begin, I want to suggest just one thing. If you take away one thing from our time together, I hope it's this, that there is no story without the story of the Spirit. There is no story without the story of the Spirit. It's common in the church today, particularly in the Western church, to kind of downplay, dismiss, and disregard the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Trinity is a reality that while we ascribe to intellectually and theologically, we don't embrace functionally often. And so how do we understand this misunderstood and overlooked person of the triune Godhead? And as we look at Scripture in the opening chapters of the Bible, what I want us to see again is that there's no story without the story of the Spirit, and maybe more specifically, without the Spirit there is no God, there is no order, and there is no us. Those are the three things I want us to look at this morning. The first, without the Spirit, there is no God. Now, I fully, I fully recognize the implausibility of many people who are outside of the church who, who wrestle with the idea of believing in the divine. I totally get that. But I also recognize the challenge and implausibility of those within the church to embrace the, the teachings of the Trinity. So let's talk about both of them in one sermon. Let's, that'll be fun. So, so, but, but in all seriousness, when we think about the Trinity, sometimes it's, it's believed that, that Christians kind of believe that the Trinity was just this doctrine that Christians created early because they were bored. It was a way to kind of entertain themselves. And that is so far from the truth. The, the, the Trinity is not some biblical busy work. It's not, it wasn't contrived in some theological petri dish. But rather, the doctrine of the Trinity was a doctrine that the church established and declaring what has, how God has revealed Himself to us. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was a prime example of this. The council was not seeking to come up with a new doctrine, but rather to give new language to an old, ageless, timeless truth, namely that God is one in essence, but three in person. Cuban theologian Houston Gonzalez describes this reality of the Council of Nicaea. He says this, no matter how difficult their task, the, the council members of Nicaea, no matter how difficult their task may have been, made by the manner in which the issues were posed, they were trying to articulate what had been the faith of the church for centuries. That is precisely the manner in which the Trinity was established as a doctrine. We do not believe in the Trinity because it's self-evident. Rather, we believe in the Trinity because that is how God has beautifully and yet mysteriously revealed Himself to us. And we need not look any further than the opening verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So on page one, we see that the God who is one is revealed to us as creator, but also we see this presence of the Spirit. And the Spirit is not some um, abstract, impersonal, George Lucas-like force. The Spirit is described as possessing personhood. We see this throughout the Scriptures, most notably through Jesus' words in John 16. In John 16, verse 13, we read these words of Christ. When the Spirit of truth comes, He 
will guide you into all truth. Now, this may sound interesting to some, like some of us might be here like, this is really fascinating. I love kind of exploring the mysteries of Christian thought. But some of us also might be sitting here thinking like, this just seems unnecessary and absurd and an exercise in intellect that I just don't have the capacity for. And yet, it is in the complexity of the Trinity that we find it to be a truth that we cannot deny. In fact, I think brilliantly said are the words of C.S. Lewis in his great classic, Mere Christianity, in talking about the Trinity. He says this, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we would make it easier. (laughs) I love that line. But it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. And of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. All of this means that if we are to reject the Holy Spirit, we are, or deny the Holy Spirit, or, or dismiss, or minimize the Holy Spirit, we are no longer fully and truly knowing and understanding, speaking to and relating to the God of Scripture. When Christians say they believe in God, they are saying they believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you might be thinking, okay, so why does that matter? What is the significance of it? And I'm glad you asked. And there are several reasons I could give, but I want to just give one for, this, for us this morning. The Trinity, as I said, is the doctrine that describes how God has introduced himself to us. To discount the Trinity, to discount the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, is to deny who God says he is. Now, let me illustrate it this way. I know many of you kids, we've started school, right? Many of you have started school. You've probably met some new friends. Show of hands, who has met a new kid in their class? Have you guys met any new kids in your classroom? Okay. Meeting new people can be really intimidating, right? It can be challenging. So here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine it's the first day of school. You sit down at your desk, and you go and you introduce yourself to someone sitting next to you. You say, hi, my name is so-and-so, and my favorite color is orange. What's your name? And then this person, this kid, says to you, I don't like your name. In fact, I'm going to call you Rapunzel. And, and, and the color orange is so ugly. Your favorite color is magenta. How would you feel in that moment? How would you feel if someone changed your name and changed your favorite color? That's exactly what we're doing when we fail to recognize the reality that the Spirit is in fact God. We are telling God, this is confusing and I can't comprehend it. I would rather embrace you and believe you as this than that. If we are to take our understanding of and our relationship with God seriously, we must relate to Him on His terms and not purely on our terms. God has introduced Himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so as we seek to understand the story of the Spirit, we have to see that without the Spirit, there is no God. But the second thing we see as we continue through Genesis 1 is that without the Spirit, there is no order. Without the Spirit, there is no God, but we also see that without the Spirit, there is no order. So returning to Genesis 1, we see the unique contribution of the work of the Spirit in creation. And what we see isn't so much the Holy Spirit kind of rolling His sleeves up to create and to make things, but rather what we see is that the Spirit, in His work, is bringing order out of chaos, is ordering the stuff of creation, if you will. Look again at Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Now that phrase, without form and void, it is the English translation of probably my favorite Hebrew phrase, tohu vavohu. Say that with me, tohu vavohu. It's just fun. I think we should name all of our children that. It's a wonderful name. It's a wonderful name. Now, the, the word, what that literally means, it's describing uninhabitable space. It's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe wilderness or places where humanity cannot thrive. The idea behind this phrase is chaos and disorder. Now, while Genesis is an account of creation, it is absolutely that, it is not the kind of account of creation that we might expect from our modern-day perspective. You see, we often get so caught up in reading Genesis as if it's a science textbook, and that's not really the design or the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 in particular. We come to Genesis 1 and 2 with questions of how and when, and those are important questions. But the biblical authors are more interested in questions of who and why. And so when you come to the Bible with how and when questions, when the Bible is giving you how and why realities, well, we can see why there's confusion. And so when we ask the question of, well, how was the world created or when was the world created, we are asking sometimes house questions. When was the house created? So for example, if you were to ask me, when was the Capel home created? Well, I could tell you, uh, are you talking about the home? it was built in, in 1984? Or are you asking, oh, when we purchased the home? Or are you asking when we moved into our home? Or are you asking when we unpacked all of our stuff and hung pictures on the wall? Or are you asking when we finally had everything that we wanted, the home decorated just how we wanted? You see how the question of when was the Capel home created? It solicits different answers. In the same way, if we come to Genesis asking questions of how and when, when the Bible is more interested in who and why, you can see how that produces confusion. Or think of it this way. If you were to ask, when was basketball created? What was it on January 15th, 1892, when James Naismith published the rules of basketball? Or, or was it when he came up with the idea of the sport one afternoon in gym class? Or, or was it when the first game was played with a soccer ball and two peach baskets? Or was it when it became a collegiate sport? In the same way, we have to come to Genesis with proper questions. There are different ways of asking and answering this question. The same is true of the creation account in Genesis. And the focus, the focus of Genesis 1 and 2 is not on the moment of when or on the exact mechanism of how, although those are important questions, I'm not dismissing them, but rather the focus is on who and on why. And what we see in Genesis is that the who is the creator God revealed as a spirit and the why is to bring order out of chaos. And look at, look at the creation account. What then happens after this? Light is called and ordered and brought out of the chaos of darkness. Land is brought forth and ordered to rise up out of the chaos of waters. And life is ordered to emerge from the chaos of lifeless dirt. The Holy Spirit's work in creation is bringing order to the world and preparing it to be a place where humans can thrive and flourish. So what does this mean for us today? This is interesting. Thank you, Reed, uh, for this little Bible lesson. How do we connect this ageless, timeless truth to the way in which we live our lives and what we encounter Monday morning? And in part, what this means is that the Holy Spirit is at work in and through the people of God to bring order out of the chaos around us. This is how the Spirit is at work through His church. 
Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, whose name is just so fun to say, has these insightful and inspiring words for us about the work of the Spirit through the work of God's people. He says this, because the whole creation is the Spirit's sphere of operation, the Spirit is not only the Spirit of religious experience, but also the Spirit of worldly engagement. Remember, the Spirit is hovering over the waters of creation. For this reason, it is not at all strange to connect the Spirit of God with mundane work. In fact, an adequate understanding of human work will be hardly possible without recourse to pneumatology, which is the study of the spirits. Do you see how this, this knowledge, this doctrine that may feel so beyond our imagination actually connects to the way in which we live our lives in this world and what we face on Monday? The spirit is at work through each of us in our vocations and places of calling where God has sent us. And so part of what this means is that your work as a custodian, for example, is about the work of creating the order of sanitation from the chaos of bacteria. Your work as a manager is to create the order of unity and productivity out of the chaos of people. Some of you are like, amen, that's, that's, a, that's a challenging call. Your work as, as a parent, as a grandparent, is to create the order of family and home out of the chaos of children and laundry. Your work as a scientist, as a researcher, as a student is to bring about the order of knowledge from the chaos of data and misinformation. Do you see how the work of the Spirit is at work through His church? And just as a quick aside, if you are one who wrestles with the reconciliation of faith and science, you should find great comfort for the reality that without the Spirit there is no order. The reality of the Spirit bringing order to our world is what makes the scientific method and scientific research possible. The work of science is to discern the order that the Spirit has created in the world. And, and as a result, to understand this order allows us to worship the triune God, delight in His creation through scientific discovery. Faith and science need not be enemies. Science should be seen as a way to better understand God, the world He has made, and how to worship Him in it. And so church family, as we think about this reality that without the Spirit there is no order, my hope and prayer is that we would be a people who submit to the Father, who follow the Son, who are empowered by the Spirit, sent out into our various Monday lives and vocations, seeking to bring the order of flourishing to our neighbors out of the chaos of sin that has been unleashed upon our world through what we have done and through what has been done to us. This is what it means to live within, within the Spirit in part, because without the Spirit there is no order. But as we take a closer look and turn to Genesis 2, we find that also without the Spirit, there is no us. There is no us. So turn to Genesis 2 and look with me again at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, but like, what is it that actually gives us life? I think we know the textbook answers of, of the, the descriptors of, you know, breathing, of, of movement, of growth, etc. But, but these are mere descriptions of a living thing. They do not answer the question, what brings about a living thing? What produces life within a living thing? Our existence is not derived merely from our ability to breathe. Rather, our existence is derived from the one who breathed life into us 
who breathed His Spirit into us. You see, we, we know that we are more than mere material matter and existence. We know that life is more than simply possessing the ability to breathe. And the reason I say that is because we know the exact opposite is false. Or, sorry, that the exact opposite is true. Double negatives, they, they have a hard time in my brain. We, we know that death is more than simply the moment that we stop breathing. We know that. We know that deep within our being that death is not simply the time in which some, a human being stops breathing. And this is all too fresh for me right now. I, I, I did a funeral just this past Monday of a young man in our community, a husband, a father of five young boys who lost his life suddenly and tragically. And as I met with the family, as I entered their home, I entered into one of the heaviest spaces I've ever walked into. The grief and the pain, the shock, the numbness of what was experienced by this family was very palpable. And it wasn't simply because this young man stopped breathing. It's because the life that was given him, bestowed upon him by his creator, breathed into him by the spirit, this life was taken. His worth and his dignity given to him by his creator, that is what we mourn when a life ends when we stop breathing. Our culture may ascribe brilliance and supremacy of thought to the Julian Barnes of the world who say that there is no God, we are only our material matter, our material existence, but we know that there is a great deal of matter to our lives than purely our material nature. But when we are faced with the death of a loved one, with our own mortality, we cannot shake the feeling that we are more than our material existence. And that's because the eternal God who is spirit has breathed within us his spirit as eternal beings ourselves. Friends, without the spirit, there is no God. Without the spirit, there is no order. And without the spirit, there is no us. There is no life. But what I want to say lastly is that what all of this actually builds to and what all of this means is that without the Spirit, there's actually no hope whatsoever. There is no hope. We can choose to side with the Julian Barnes of the world, and, and hear me, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dissing or, or trying to be disrespectful to Julian Barnes, but what I'm trying to recognize is that there is a tension that we have to grapple with. We like the idea of denying the fact that there is a God, but, but how do we wrestle with the fact that we still fear death and long for significance within us. We can choose to side with, with those in our world who we see as superior in thought, who say that God is dead, who say that transcendence is a farce, who believe that the material world is all there is. But like Barnes, we will be left with the nagging thought and feeling that perhaps there is more to the story. There was a review of Julian Barnes's book uh, published in the New York Times uh, several years ago, and I want to read a portion of it. The, the, the review is called uh, The Dying Light, and I want to read a portion of this review, and I want you to hear how without the Spirit, there is no hope. It's a little bit of a longer quote, so bear with me. So Barnes turns toward the strict regime of science, and here is little comfort indeed. We are all dying. Even the sun is dying. Homo sapiens are evolving towards some species that won't care about us whatsoever. And our art and our literature and scholarship will fall into utter oblivion. Every author will eventually become an unread author. 
and then humanity will die out and beetles will rule the world. A man can fear his own death, but what is he anyway? Simply a mass of neurons. The brain is a lump of meat and the soul is merely a story the brain tells itself. Individuality is an illusion. Scientists find no physical evidence of self. It is something we've talked ourselves into. We do not produce thoughts. Thoughts produce us. The I of which we are so fond properly exists only in grammar. Stripped of the Christian narrative, we gaze out on a landscape that, while fascinating, offers us nothing that one could call hope. Without the Spirit, there is no hope. Because without the Spirit, there is no us. Because without the Spirit, there is no order. And that all derives from the fact that without the Spirit, there is no God. Friends, the story of the Spirit tells us that our material existence is not the totality of our lives. The story of the Spirit tells us that our life matters because we are more than matter. The story of the Spirit tells us that death does not have to have the final word over us, Because the story of the Spirit is a story of Christ's defeat over death itself. In Romans chapter 8, we read these profound words from the Apostle Paul in verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. And the Holy Spirit is the defeater of death through Christ Jesus. This is what the story of the Spirit is. This is the story the Spirit is telling. And my hope and prayer is that this would be our story collectively. And if it is not your story, if it is not your story, I pray that you would come to find that through the Spirit, there is a God. There is an order to life. There is a sense in which you find the source of your life and there is a hope. May you find the story of the Spirit to be your story. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that in this time you would would break through the the barriers and the walls of thought, through through the the wounds that we have, the baggage, even perhaps the, the hurts that we have experience through, through those who even claim the name of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, awaken us to the reality that you are God, that you are with us, that through your Spirit we can find new life in you, that you bring a sense of order to the chaos around us and within us. Lord, I ask for your Spirit to reveal to us the beauty and the wondrous ordering work of Christ who has come to reorder our lives, to reorient our lives away from sin and shame and death and decay and reorient them around you and your kingdom of life, of beauty, of truth and justice. Lord, may your spirit make known to us the beauty of this truth so that we might proclaim together this story that is ours. We pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus and for his glory. Amen.